Good evening, everybody. I'm Father Charlie Gordon, the uh, co-director, along with my colleague Karen Eichler, of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture here uh, at the University of Portland. Uh, just a, a couple of practical announcements. First off, there's a table over there under the clock that has some fascinating materials and some things you can sign up for. Um, we need to let you know that if you are a school teacher, K through 12 teacher, uh, you can get uh, your special arrangement with the School of Education here at the University of Portland. You can get uh, free PDUs, uh, personal development units, for any uh, Garaventa Center uh, event, including this one. And so if you just sign the appropriate sheet over there, uh, we will uh, get those out to you uh, tomorrow. There's also a sheet uh, that you can sign in order to get the latest newsletters and information about uh, upcoming events on the Garaventa Center calendar. Uh, such events as uh, Why Theology Needs Louis C.K. Uh, and uh, we have uh, uh, a, a, no a number of, of fascinating things coming up. And uh, I know that judging from tonight's attendance that you'll be eager to participate uh, in that. The Garaventa Center from the beginning has uh, set out to try to uh, make the uh, Garaventa Center uh, something that, uh, that every uh, intellectually curious um, person in the Pacific Northwest knows about. Um, that's ambitious, especially since Garaventa isn't particularly easy to remember. Um, but neither is Schnitzer, and everybody knows the Schnitzer, right? So hopefully uh, we're just a couple of years behind them. Uh, so um, watch this space. We have uh, great plans uh, for the future of kind of breaking open the great Catholic intellectual tradition and pouring it in to the, uh, the wider uh, Portland and Northwest community. Uh, tonight is the Hesburgh Lecture. And the Hesburgh Lecture is co-sponsored by the Garaventa Center and the uh, University of Notre Dame Club of Portland. And I'm sort of the natural person to uh, be the spokesperson because I'm also the chaplain of the uh, Notre Dame Club of Portland. And uh, why, you may ask, is there a special relationship between UP and Notre Dame? It's because we're sister schools. Uh, both are uh, missions of uh, my religious order, the Congregation of Holy Cross. So we're all cousins here. This is going to be like a, a family reunion where you meet a lot of people that you've never met before, but who just seem really familiar. Um, so we hope that there'll be some friendships uh, started uh, this evening. Uh, tonight's talk uh, is going to be followed after, after the talk by uh, some additional uh, material that our speaker has brought with him, some slides and materials about what's happening at Notre Dame right now. Uh, a lot of the new construction and some of the projects that are changing the face of the campus. So if you're interested in that, 
aspect of the evening, please feel free to stay on after the uh, primary lecture. Our speaker this evening, as you can see, is Dr. Mitchell Wayne, and he is professor of element, elementary particle physics at the University of Notre Dame. His uh, special area of academic interest is the Higgs boson, the, uh, the famous God particle that, that the journalists have been talking about so much over the uh, last few years. Uh, and he's especially concerned with the, uh, the sort of uh, technical side of developing the extraordinarily complex apparatus that, that, that are necessary in order to uh, push uh, particle physics forward. And he has uh, also uh, done a great deal of good work in trying to discover and to inspire uh, the particle physicists of tomorrow. Um, we're delighted to have him uh, with us this evening. And uh, so please help me to uh, welcome uh, Dr. Mitchell Wayne to talk about Einstein, how one mild-mannered physicist changed the way we understand our world. Thank you very much, uh, Father Charlie. Can everybody hear me okay, okay out there? Yes, good. Yeah. This is small compared to my classroom. So uh, anyway, thank you for the introduction and, and for all of your hospitality. And uh, it's a delight to see such a nice turnout here. Lots of students. For the students, I hope your professors gave you extra credit for coming here tonight. Not even, uh, somebody's nodding out there already. So trying to figure out where to stand. Will this be OK? I guess uh, let me try my little. Uh, oh, I have to aim it on this thing. So I'm a physicist. And of course, for me, as a physicist, Einstein is really a big deal. But I just throw this up there to remind you, God, uh, remind the audience that it's actually a big deal for everybody. And you know, back in uh, the end of the last century, when Time Magazine had to decide on their person of the century, they didn't pick a politician or a general. Um, they picked Albert Einstein, which is pretty remarkable since he did most of his work uh, early in the 20th century. He died barely, uh, you know, just a few years into the second half of the century. So um, for us as physicists, this is a Symbol, you know, a thing of pride for us, and I want to hopefully uh, tell you a little bit about why they made a choice like that, and why he is so influential and continues to be influential. Now, if you were all to close your eyes and I said, picture Albert Einstein, it's about what you would think about, right? And so that's a typical picture of him. Or there, look, he's riding a bicycle. <laughs> or sticking his tongue out. I notice they use that for the uh, publicity here, uh, being silly. Uh, these are all very iconic images of Einstein. But this is actually what he looked like when he did the bulk of his work. I mean, he was young once, and actually um, uh, uh, he did a huge amount of work uh, um, before the age of 30. So this is, uh, I just wanted to show you this so you realize that this is a young man uh, at the height of his powers when he did a lot of what I'm going to talk about. So quickly, the outline for my talk is I'm going to give you a very, an incredibly brief history of physics, three slides, I think, talk a, a slide or two about Einstein's early years, We'll talk about his miracle year of 1905, and I'll really get into some of the physics there and the general relativity, where, as I sort of tongue-in-cheek there say, Einstein becomes a rock star. It actually is, is true. That's when he really became world famous. And then a little bit about the later years and, um, and a few final remarks at the end. 
So our, our brief history of, uh, incredibly brief history of physics, of course, starts with one of the real giants in physics, which is uh, Isaac Newton. Most of you are familiar with, uh, you know, four, 400 years ago or so, came up with his three laws of classical physics that are still the, the fundamental underpinnings of, of science today. We, we put, basically put men on the moon using the physics of Newton, developed all those years ago. He was, um, it was interesting in the time, he couldn't solve the kind of problems he wanted to, uh, to solve, and so he invented calculus to be able to do that, which is pretty impressive. And of course, he came up with the universal law of gravity. And I just want to take a moment there, because everyone sort of has this, there's this apocryphal uh, story or picture of Einstein, uh, not Einstein, so Newton dozing underneath the apple tree, and the apple falls down, hits him on the head, and, and he discovers gravity. And of course, everybody realized that something was making the apple fall down. That, that wasn't the genius of Newton. The genius of Newton was to realize that the same thing that made the apple fall down from the tree was uh, making the moon go around the Earth, and the Earth going around the sun, <coughs> and then coming up with a actual mathematical formula to describe all that, which was just an astonishing uh, feat at the time. So a couple hundred years after uh, Newton came uh, James Clerk Maxwell. Now Maxwell did a lot of great work on his own, but what he's really uh, known for was sort of taking some disparate uh, work done by other people like Ampere and Faraday and putting it all together in what are known as Axel's equations. And in these equations, he united the phenomena of electricity and magnetism in these four uh, very famous equations here. In fact, when I was a graduate student, there used to be a company that would make special t-shirts for nerdy students <laughs> like us. And these, you could get, um, you could get Maxwell's equations on your t-shirts, any shortage equation, or even some chemistry if you really wanted, something like that. But one of the amazing things that <clears throat> Maxwell found out after he put these four equations together is he realized that from these equations, they predicted that uh, the existence of um, traveling waves of interdependent electric and magnetic fields, what we call electromagnetic waves. And when he went through the mathematics, he found that those electromagnetic waves traveled at this speed, this thing we call C, or 300,000 kilometers a second, the speed of light. So Maxwell discovered that light, visible light, was electromagnetic radiation. And what came out of that is what we call the electromagnetic spectrum, or more poetically, we call Maxwell's rainbow. And the thing to realize here is all of these phenomena, from radio waves to microwaves to infrared radiation that cooks your food to ultraviolet that cooks your skin, all the way up to x-rays, invisible light is all the same phenomenon. It's all electromagnetic radiation. And the only thing different is, uh, is the frequency and the wavelength, which are um, inversely dependent. So the higher frequency phenomena out here have, long, have shorter wavelength, and the lower frequency over here have longer wavelength. The other interesting thing here is the actual rainbow right here. This is what we can see. One little sliver. These demarcations here are powers of 10, factors of 10. And one fraction, like a third of one power of 10, is what our eyes are capable of discerning through this entire recommended spectrum. And it's not so surprising, because right in the middle of this is, uh, is the color that the sun emits, the peak radiation from the sun. So we've evolved, of course, to, to be able to see in the, in the light that lights up our Earth. And this is, uh, Maxwell, this is the electromagnetic spectrum. So this takes us up very quickly to about 1900. <laughs> and, uh, and at that time, it's interesting. I don't know if it's a phenomenon of end of the century or not, but um, uh, there was a question, well, was there anything else to discover? And a lot of very smart people uh, didn't think so. So here's Michelson, who we'll talk about a little bit later, 
says the more important fundamental laws and facts of physical science have all been discovered. I won't read the rest of that. This is interesting. Everything that can be invented has been invented. <laughs> this guy was the head of the U.S. Patent Office at that time. <laughs> and then uh, this one's a little... Um, um, controversial as to whether I really said it, but such a great quote I put up there anyway. It says, uh, there is nothing new to be discovered in physics now. All that remains is more and more precise measurement. And this is Lord Kelvin, a very famous physicist. So there was a feeling that it was all done. But fortunately, there were a lot of people that still did experiments, and it turns out uh, once you do experiments, you start to see results that were not explainable. And it turns out there was a lot of new physics to be done. So this was sort of the environment that that the young Einstein was coming into you. I just, I just wanted to sort of set the table for you, coming around 1900. And I just wanted to tell you very briefly about his youth. He was born in um, 1879 in Ulm, which is now in Germany, but not too far from Switzerland. Whoops, he was born in a middle-class Jewish family, pretty secular. He flirted with um, being religious for a little bit as a youth. Uh, as I say here, he was a bit slow to speak, but otherwise normal. He had a toy compass when he was about five that he really liked a lot in a book on geometry. He was a little bit rebellious. He actually quit school. He didn't like his school at 15. And then he came back and he finished high school in Switzerland. And then he graduated eventually from the ETH, which is still there in Zurich in 1900, with really what was an unexceptional record. He struggled to find a job. He wound up in Bern, interestingly enough, at the patent office. He was helped... Uh, get this job with his good friend Marcel Grossman, who helped him a lot, a very, very solid mathematician, very strong mathematician, who helped uh, Einstein a lot uh, in later years with some of his work. And the main thing to take away from this slide is there was nothing exceptional here that would make you think that Einstein was about to become Einstein. Okay, and, um, but the interesting thing was that the, the patent office turned out to be a really good job for him because there wasn't much to do. And he had a lot of time just to sort of sit around and think. And he thought a lot, and um, he thought a lot, and then in 1905, uh, we got the result of all that thinking. So in 1905, he was 26, year old, 26 years old, and he published actually four seminal papers. Well, we'll talk about three of these, and one uh, discussing the particle nature of light, the existence of atoms as distinct objects, Brownian motion, the relativity of both space and time, and the equivalence of mass and energy. This is sort of my opinion, but I think many scientists, there are a few in the back, this is who would probably agree that each of these discoveries itself was worth a Nobel Prize. We'll talk about his Nobel Prize later on. And I, there's nothing in the history of science like this outpouring of, of work in, in over just a few short months in, in one year. So the first thing I want to talk about is the photoelectric effect, which is how the color of light affects um, Voltage and current. The photoelectric effect is something we all use all the time in our digital cameras. It's behind solar cells, uh, medical imaging. You know, you go in an elevator and, and you're about to, the elevator door is about to close and you interrupt the beam of light. That has to do with the photoelectric effect as well as your garage door opener and so on. It's all from this um, this one phenomenon called, that we call the photoelectric effect. And the photoelectric effect is an experiment that, once Einstein explained it, really tells us about the nature of light. If you go back to Newton, he believed light was corpuscular, made up of little bundles. But most scientists, uh, since Newton and of course uh, Maxwell as well, thought that light was wave-like. And in fact, in 1801, uh, Thomas Young did some very classic experiments that every physics, beginning physics student learns about by passing light through two slits. 
First, by passing light through a single slit, he saw that it spread out and diffracted, okay, which is what waves do, water waves would do the same thing if it went through a little narrow channel. And then when he took two light through two different slits, the light would diffract uh, through both of those slits, and then the light would actually interfere and set up a, a nice standing pattern of light and dark spots. And, and the, the only way you could explain these results was uh, by treating light as a wave. Okay, so it was pretty well established that light was a wave at that point. But also, as the technology got better around 1900, uh, many, many experiments were, uh, were able to look at some, what we call the photoelectric effect. And the photoelectric effect is if I take a, a very nice, clean piece of metal, put it in a vacuum, and I shine some light on it, I can knock some of the electrons that are right there on the surface of the metal out and measure those electrons. They're bound to the surface of the metal, but the light, the energy from the light, is able to knock them free. Okay? This next slide, I like, it's a cartoon, but I think it really illustrates very nicely what goes on in the photoelectric, expect, exper, photoelectric effect experiment. Excuse me. So here's a, this metal surface, it's in a vacuum. And then here's my light source. And you see here I can change the intensity of the light. I can change the color of the light. And then at this end I have another um, piece of metal where I hook it up to a battery. And if I make this slightly positive, then I shine the light on the surface, I bump out some electrons, and then I can pull them over and create an electric current. And by doing that I can measure how many electrons I get depending on the different characteristics of the light. And then I can do one other thing, which is very important. Instead of making this a little bit positive, I can make it a little bit negative, and that pushes the electrons back, and I can keep making it a little more and more negative until I finally don't get any electrons coming across. And by doing that, I can determine the maximum speed, the fastest speed of the, any electron that's produced by the photoelectric effect. So this was a really interesting experiment, and, and lots of people were doing it because they had the technology, and then they were measuring uh, all the different um, results of this. And, the, and some interesting uh, things happened or came out of this experiment. So if you remember, uh, from, from Maxwell, you showed us that light was an electromagnetic wave. And an electromagnetic wave, the color, as I showed you with the spectrum, is determined by the wavelength, or inversely by the frequency. But the brightness of the wave just depends on the amplitude, how big is the wave. And the energy, then, is determined by the brightness. Okay. That's what the wave theory says. And so here would be some blue light with shorter wavelength, red light with longer wavelength. But if they both had the same height or amplitude, they should be able to carry uh, the same energy. And if this red one had a lower amplitude, it would have less energy. Okay. So with this idea of light as a wave, if you do the photoelectric effect, this is what was expected. It was expected that bright light would make faster electrons than dim light. And the model was as follows. The electron is held on there, and the light comes in and starts to shake the electron. And the bigger the wave, the harder it shakes the electron, and then when it finally breaks out, it's going to have more speed. You can think of it like a buoy attached to the bottom of the ocean, right? And the, the bigger the waves come in, the harder it's pulling on the buoy, and if it finally breaks out, it's going to have more speed than if, it was, if it's a little wave, uh, you know, making the buoy go back and forth. So the prediction was that the bright light would make faster electrons than the dim light. Also, with the bright light, the electrons should come out sooner than with dim light because you're shaking it harder, so it's going to be quicker by the time you actually give it enough energy of the shaking to free it from the metal surface. 
And the color of the light is not important. And I just put this here to remind you that what varies with the color of the light is the wavelength and the frequency. So blue light and purple light here, this would be nice University of Portland color here, right? Mm -hmm. has a higher frequency and a lower wavelength, so higher frequency. The red light has a lower frequency and a longer wavelength. But according to um, Maxwell, that shouldn't matter at all. But when you do the experiment, you see something very different. You see that the bright light makes more electrons than the dim light. But they aren't moving any faster. Okay. Um, the blue light makes faster electrons than the red light. And sometimes, depending on the metal, the red light doesn't even work at all. It doesn't knock any electrons off at all. And the other thing is that when you, whether you use the light, bright or dim light, the electrons come out instantaneously. There's no time difference. Either it comes out or doesn't right away. So very, very different results. Could not be explained with the wave theory of light from Maxwell. <laughs> and it was Einstein who it was in the literature that this problem existed. He thought about it, and this is the solution he came up with. And the solution he came up with was that light kind of has a dual nature, which we, of course, now know and, and believe uh, that not only light has a dual nature, but all particles do. So he says light is sometimes a wave and sometimes a particle. And light travels through space as a wave. That's why Young, when he sent the light through the slits, would see it diffract like a wave. But when light interacts with the atoms, it hits the atoms as a particle. That particle state of light is what we call a photon, of course, from the Greek. And then not only did Einstein have this, but he came up with this very simple formula that said that the energy of a photon is simply its frequency times a fundamental constant, what turns out to be a fundamental constant of nature, which is Planck's constant. Planck's constant, obviously, is named after Planck, who had used this to explain another phenomenon that no one understood called black body radiation a few years earlier. But Planck really didn't think there was anything fundamental about it. He thought it was a, kind of a, uh, I don't want to say ad hoc, I'm trying to remember. Uh, well, it, 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 it solved the problem, but he didn't think there was any fundamental physics behind it. But he, we realize now that it, it is a fundamental constant of nature. Okay, so... When the light comes and it hits the, uh, the atoms, uh, the electrons, it's hitting them as a particle with energy which is proportional to its frequency. Just its frequency times a number. And this explained everything. Because now, bright light contains more photons than dim light. So bright light will hit more electrons and more electrons will come out. And that's what was observed. Blue photons, because they have a higher frequency, have more energy than red photons. So if a blue photon, it's just a collision. It comes in and hits an electron, it'll knock it out with more energy and more speed than if a red one does, because the red one has less energy than the blue one. Okay, so the electrons come out faster from the blue. And then, of course, if certain colors don't have enough energy, you could see the situation where the blue photon has enough energy to knock an electron out, and the red doesn't. And that was observed as well. And... Whatever color knocks out the electron, the process happens instantaneously. Here's my electron, here's a photon comes in, knocks it. If it has enough energy, it knocks it right out. If not, it doesn't. And, and so there's no time delay. It doesn't depend on how bright it is or not. These electrons come out right away. And so this is a huge success, of course. It completely explained the, um, the phenomenon of the photoelectric effect. Uh, what was interesting is it wasn't really accepted by the scientific community. Um, uh, until several years later, Arthur Compton, who was a, one of the great, first great American uh, physicists, showed that it also worked. 
to explain uh, his results on bouncing X-rays off of carbon atoms. And once again, you could only explain that. X-rays are another type of electromagnetic uh, wave, and he could only explain that with this picture, Einstein's picture of light as a photon. So this was the first great success of Einstein, of Einstein sorry, in the, uh, uh, in the miracle year, the photoelectric effect. Then he turned to one of the things he's really well known for, which is the theory of special relativity. And I want to point out something really important here. The photoelectric effect he came up with to explain a problem that was seen experimentally. There was no problem here. Or any, this was just Einstein thinking about light and coming up with a theory, right? There was no experimental evidence that people didn't understand or anything like that. And what he showed with the simple theory is that not only are space and time relative, they are entangled. As I say here, the results are astonishing and bizarre. I'll show you a couple of those in a minute. Yet without them, your GPS wouldn't work. And my research in particle physics wouldn't be possible at all without uh, special relativity. It's really key to us, and uh, it's one of the, the fundamental um, understandings behind the work that we do. So special relativity also involves uh, light and understanding light. And, and as I told you earlier, by 1900, it was known that light was an electromagnetic wave with this speed. People had been suspecting that light had a finite speed for hundreds of years already by this time. And in fact, Galileo tried to measure the speed of light. He, he went out with his assistant. They each had a lamp. And they put a cloth over the lamp. And his idea was his, his assistant went over on some hill. And he was going to take the cover off of his lamp. And when his assistant saw that, he'd take the cover off his lamp. And then Galileo would measure the time until he saw his assistant's lap. <laughs> and his clock, actually, he used his pulse to try to measure time. Because, you know, he didn't have a stopwatch to carry around or anything like that. Or something, you know. So this is what he um, determined. He said, I, I love the ways people spoke back then. If not instantaneous, it is extraordinarily rapid. <laughs> and that's for sure. The first actual measurement of the speed of light, not that accurate, but amazing at the time, because, again, several hundred years ago was Ole Romer, the Danish um, astronomer who was looking at the uh, moons, the period of the moons of uh, Jupiter. And, and he, you know, for years he would study that and carefully map that out. And he saw that uh, when the moon would appear from behind Jupiter, was it when he expected? And he realized that the diff what was happening is that whether he was doing it when making that measurement when he was on this side of the sun and close to Jupiter, or when the Earth was on the other side of the sun, when he's down here, it actually took the light longer from that moon to get to him, and that corresponded to a delay in the time that he saw. And he, and he used what he knew about the orbit, um, orbital uh, distance of the uh, Earth and so on to, to get a rough measurement of the speed of light, which is pretty amazing back then. And, of course, now we know it to an incredible accuracy. But uh, as I point out here, it's really fast. You can go to the moon and back in three seconds. Is anyone here a fan of the Big Bang Theory? <laughs> There's a great episode where they go up on the roof of their apartment building and they uh, shoot a laser beam off a little piece of metal space junk that was left behind and uh, measure the time for it to come back. And it was about three seconds, actually. I just have to tell you, the physics in that show is, is bang on. Everything is exactly accurate. They have their own... Uh, a UCLA professor is their, is their scientific advisor and everything. So um, I love the show. And I, you know, it just reminds me so much of people I went to school with. And I'm not going to tell you which one I was. So, uh, uh, but anyway. Um, okay. So, but there was a problem 
not really an experimental problem, but there was a, a, a problem of understanding about light, which is that if light is a traveling wave, which we knew it was, it was an electromagnetic wave, the question is, what is it traveling through? Okay? And waves typically need to be traveling through something, right? A water wave needs to be traveling through water, and a sound wave needs to be traveling through air. Another thing I just have to tell you, right, when you watch the Star Wars movies, and they're having all these space battles, and you're getting all these explosions out there in space, you wouldn't hear anything, because sound doesn't travel through the vacuum of space. There's no air out there, okay? So it makes for a less exciting movie if they were going to be scientifically correct. But, but it seemed that light could travel through nothing, right? Starlight gets here through the emptiness of space, which is better than any vacuum we could build on Earth. And, and in the lab, you could make a vacuum in a jar, and you could still, there's a, a classic experiment where you take a jar and you put a, a little bell ringing in it and a little light bulb, and you pull all the air out, and you can't hear the bell anymore because there's no air for the sound waves to go through, but you can still see the light because light doesn't need it. Uh, you can go through a vacuum. But this bothered people a lot that, that, because all other waves seem to need a medium, something to travel through. And in fact, uh, it bothered people so much that they invented something called the luminiferous ether, luminiferous ether, which was supposed to be this sort of un you know, um, unseen, untouchable, untastable um, substance that filled the, all of space, but um, that we were all traveling through, and light as well, and that gave light a medium and something to travel through. But Michelson and Morley, the same Michelson who thought science was dead, um, or didn't have anything new, did some classic experiments where they measured the speed of light at different uh, times of the Earth's rotation around the sun, or revolution around the sun. And if this ether was there, then at some time you'd kind of be going with the ether as, as the Earth is going through it, and at other times you'd go uh, against the ether and you would measure a difference in the speed of light. And they saw no difference at all. So the conclusion was that there was nothing out there, there was no ether, and, and that light doesn't need a medium to go through. So this was interesting, but it also was very disturbing because of this statement here, because it meant there was no absolute reference frame. Now let me just try to explain a little bit what that means. If you go out to a lake on a nice day, um, and you'll see you know, a water skier go this way, and a swimmer that way, and a sailboat, whatever, and of course you can measure or look at their relative speeds with respect to each other, but you can also talk about every one of those things uh, speed with respect to the, let's say, the calm lake. That gives you a reference point, the speed with respect to the calm lake, okay? Um, but it seems that for light, there is no reference. There is no absolute. Any, any reference uh, point is um, as good as any other because it's not going through anything. So that was disturbing not only to physicists but philosophers. And it, all, it was another one of these things also that sort of, you know, said there's no... The Earth isn't special, right? There's no, you know, uh, the light. Um, uh, but I don't want to get too deep into that because it's a physics talk. Okay. So Einstein thought a lot about that. And in 1905, he came up with uh, two postulates. This is his second paper. The first, he said that the laws of physics are the same for observers in all inertial reference frames. Now, what we mean by inertial reference frames, very simply, is that it's two people are looking, if they're going at constant speed with respect to each other, they don't have to be at the same speed or one or both at rest, but as long as the speed is constant, that's what we call an inertial reference frame. And this is really just an extension of uh, Newton's first law, the law of inertia, sometimes called. 
But the really re um, revolutionary idea he came out with was he said that the speed of light is the same for observers in all inertial reference frames. And this was really bizarre, and, and it's still bizarre. And let me try to explain to you why. So in classical physics, you might have somebody standing at rest, then a horse going by at 20 miles an hour, and a minivan at 60 miles an hour. In classical physics, the relative speed of the minivan to the horse, you'd see, is 40, right? 60 minus 20. But in relativity, you have someone standing here, a rocket ship going at half the speed of light, and light uh, being emitted, let's say, by the rocket ship at, uh, um, or going by at 300, uh, at the speed of light. And even for this person, the rocket ship, going at the speed of, half the speed of light, that observer would see light still at the same speed. It doesn't add or subtract like it does in classical physics. No matter how fast you're going or what direction, whatever, you always observe the speed of light moving at the speed of light, 300,000 kilometers per second. Okay, Very weird, right? Strange but true, as they say. So, based on those two postulates, when you start to apply this to physical situations, uh, you get some very interesting results. And the first is that it tells us that time is relative, and the order in which events occur depend upon your relative motion. And this is just pulled out of a textbook, and uh, but it's a nice illustration. So imagine there are two long spaceships with two observers, Sam and Sally. And uh, Sam is at rest, or, or, and Sally is moving at speed V, going to the right like that. And at a certain time, uh, two uh, asteroids hit their ships, one in the front here that emits a red flash of light, and one in the back that emits a blue flash of light. Okay, well, Sam's at rest, and, and the light, these... The light comes from the, the red this way and the blue that way, and, and Sam sees the light at exactly the same time for both asteroid hits. And he knows that the asteroid, he was sitting exactly halfway between where the asteroids hit. So he says, those events happened at the same time, because I saw the light coming at the same time. I saw it at the same time. Sally, though, is moving forward in this direction, and because the speed of light is constant, um, that she actually... It, the red light gets to her because she's going toward it first, and she sees the red light first, and then later, she sees the blue light. Later on, Sally stops her ship, she goes out, and she sees that she, in fact, was sitting exactly halfway between the two, where the two meteors hit, they left Mars on her ship. And she says, well, I was exactly halfway between, I saw the red one first and the blue one left, so they didn't happen at the same time. The red one must have hit first and the blue one hit later. The events are no longer simultaneous. Okay? For Sam, he sees the asteroids hit at the same time, but for Sally, they did not hit at the same time. Okay? The red one hit first and the, and the blue one hit later. So the order in which time events occur it depends on your relative motion. Okay? So that was one consequence of special relativity. Even stranger is what we call time dilation. Not only does the order in which events occur depend on your motion, but the actual time intervals between events will depend on your motion. And this takes a little bit of um, explanation, and, and um, so bear with me. To th the easiest way to see this, by using this uh, postulate of Einstein again, is to imagine a very special clock, which is shown here. So your clock fires a little beam of light up, hits a mirror, bounces back, comes back down here, and when it makes a round trip, we'll call that one tick of our clock. Okay? So now imagine your two observers, your two people are sitting, 
side by side, and they both have their clocks going like that, and their clocks are ticking away nice and synchronized. Okay. And now let one person, let's say, be on a train and go by at a high speed relative to the other person. So I'm sitting at the station, and my clock is beam is going up and down, and my ticks are just going. And I watch this person go by in the train. And what I see is this is what their clock looks like. Okay? Because they're moving, the light starts off that way, but a little bit time later, the mirror's moved over, and the light hits the mirror there. And a little bit time later, it comes back here. Okay? Does everybody see that? It's just like if someone were, drove by you in a train or a car and they threw a ball up and down. You wouldn't see that ball roll down. You'd see that ball move over to the side. It's the same with the light beam. But the issue is, if Einstein's right and the speed of light doesn't change, because this light makes a longer path, it takes longer for that clock to make a tick compared to the my clock that I'm sitting there with me at the station. I see the traveler's clock slow down. And this is a real effect. It's not just the clock. I would see that person's heartbeat slow down and their breath rate slow down. And they actually are moving. Time has slowed down for that person because they're moving at a high speed with respect to me. Okay? And uh, that was a very unusual and interesting uh, consequence of special relativity. So, relativity has many weird implications. Nothing can move faster than the speed of light. I'm going to come back to that in a minute as well. As I just said, time slows down as we move faster. Distances shrink as we move faster. Our mass increases as we move faster. And the interesting thing is we're not aware of any of this if we're the ones traveling. Okay. You see it when someone's traveling with respect to us. But we don't notice it if we're traveling ourselves. So you can ask, okay, uh, is this real? And I can tell you that it is real if you see it all the time in the laboratory. But a very nice example of this, of, of this uh, time dilation, what we call time dilation, special relativity, are these things called cosmic rays. Cosmic rays are mostly the, but the ones that come to Earth are particles called muons. And they're going through all of us right now. Don't be alarmed because they don't do anything. But they're going through you several per second, going through your body right now. They don't interact and, and they don't cause any harm. Enough of them could, and this is a, one of the issues that they're thinking about when sending someone to Mars. You're out there in space, you're not shielded by the Earth's surface, they get a very high flux of these things going through them over a long period of time. And that is one of the medical concerns. But anyway, what, what cosmic rays <coughs> come from are emissions from stars and galaxies far away. Protons, usually, mostly, they come and they hit the upper atmosphere of our Earth, and they interact, and then they create particles called pions, and the pions decay to muons. And so muons are created at the upper atmosphere of our Earth, which is uh, several miles up there. And the interesting thing is a muon, we know, if it's just sitting there at rest in my hand, it lives about two millionth of a, of a second. So a muon, classically, lives for two millionths of a second, and then it decays to something else, to an electron. And even if it's going at speed of light, it goes pretty near the speed of light, it could go about 600 meters. But these muons are created miles above us, and they make it all the way down to the Earth, and they're going through you and me right now. And the reason is, is the muon's clock slows down drastically compared to us, and they live longer compared to us, what they do when they're just sitting there at rest. And they live long enough to come all the way down to Earth. And this is exactly what Einstein predicted, and it's exactly what we see all the time. Okay? And the only way it could happen is through this idea of time slowing down for the muon. Now, 
you could ask, what about from the muon's perspective? If I was hopping on a muon riding toward Earth, its clock is, is going at the normal rate. It only lasts for two millionths of a second. So how does that work? Well, that's the other phenomenon that comes out of special relativity, which is what the muon sees is the Earth rushing up at, at, at nearly the speed of light. And that distance gets contracted by the same factor that the time gets slowed down. And so the muon doesn't see the Earth as um, several miles down there, but it only sees it as a couple hundred meters, and it lives long enough to get it all the way down to Earth. Again, very, very interesting and bizarre stuff, and um, I want you to think about Einstein just thinking about this as he's, you know, riding around on the, on the little trolley cars of, of Barron, right, going to the patent office, right? He didn't have any experiments to, to look at or anything like that. It was really all just uh, using his imagination about what it would be like to go near the speed of light. So you're probably thinking this seems very strange, right, unless you've studied this before. And, and of course, why does it seem so strange to us? It seems strange to us because uh, relativist, relativistic effects are significant when you're very small, when objects are very small and move very fast. And of course, we are all big and slow compared to muons and, and, uh, and uh, high energy particles. So here's an example. I, I came out here, I don't, it wasn't a 747, but it was a good sized plane. But if you fly on a 747, your clock actually slows down, but that's the amount it slows down. Okay. And the reason is the speed of light is just incredibly fast compared to anything uh, man-made. But it's a very real effect, and of course you would never measure it with your Timex or your Rolex or whatever. But they have, and this was many years ago, already taken very precise atomic clocks, and you leave one on the, air, on the ground at the airport, and you put one in a high-speed plane, and you fly it around, and you bring it back down, and compare it to the one on the ground, and it, it, less time has elapsed on that atomic clock in a measurable amount, exactly because of Einstein's uh, theory and time dilation. Okay? Again, uh, there's not only physical implications, but philosophical implications from, uh, from special relativity. There is no absolute distance or time scale. I talked about that a little bit with the, the lack of an absolute reference frame. Everyone carries with them their own definition of meter and second, and that won't always agree with those of others. Everything's relative now. Depends on your speed. No two events can be said to be simultaneously unless they occur at exactly the same place. That was with the asteroids hitting the, the spaceships, right? Okay. Time travel is possible by the slowing down effect, but only in the future. Uh, you can't go back. Even though, uh, what was that movie? Back to the Future? Yeah, anyway. Uh, space and time are connected. And that was, um, and we talk about space-time now. So time is this fourth dimension, and the only difference, of course, is you can go left and right or up and down, but time only goes one direction, it goes forward. And, of course, as you're probably thinking right now, our intuitions cannot be trusted beyond their natural domain. That's why this all seems so strange to us, because we don't live in that, at those high speeds, right? We just don't experience it. It's, it's so different from what we experience in every, everyday life that it's, it's hard to believe, uh, but it is true. So that's special relativity. Oh, and this I wanted to point out. Back in uh, just a few years ago, I don't know if people remember this, but there was a lot of excitement about a, a discovery at, where I work at CERN. Uh, in this experiment, they actually shoot beams of very um, light, tiny particles called neutrinos, and they shoot them through the ground uh, beneath the Grand Sasso uh, mountain. And they were actually trying to measure different properties of neutrinos, but they also decided to measure the time it took the neutrinos to make that distance. And... Uh, they came out with a result that was um, 
they said that these things were moving faster than the speed of light. And this really caused a huge hubbub. In fact, amazingly, it's so funny, a um, little personal story. I heard from an old girlfriend that I hadn't heard from in about 25 years that, you know, uh, wrote to me and said, is it true that, you know, Einstein might be wrong? And, you know, that's what you want to check up on me about? Oh, anyways, uh, you see from a couple of the newspapers, uh, here are the Guardian, faster than light particles found, claimed scientists, right? This is what I like, the New York Times, tiny neutrinos may have broken cosmic speed limit. Roll over Einstein? That's a little bit disrespectful, don't you think? The interesting thing is us, uh, we would talk about this at lunch, and, you know, uh, I, I lunch usually with the, some of my high energy colleagues. None of us actually ever believed it. We thought, well, our first reaction was, I wonder what they did wrong. <laughs> because that's the kind of fundamental fate we had in, in, in this work uh, by Einstein. And it turns out they had mismeasured a simple cable, and that had changed the timing in their system and all that, and, and uh, they had to retract the result uh, later that year, in fact. So, nope, he's still right. Okay, now, the last thing Einstein did in this uh, miracle year was probably come up with the most famous um, equation and result in all of physics. And this is the realization that mass and energy are interchangeable. And that, of course, is the formula E equals mc squared. And that means everything, even if it's not moving, even if there's no energy of motion, has some energy just associated with its mass sitting there. And in fact, it's huge amounts of energy. Here it says 100 milligram aspirin has enough energy to power a home for 20 years. The problem is we can't harness that energy. It's, it's very difficult to uh, extract that. But um, uh, this is uh, the, the interchangeability of energy and mass from, uh, from Einstein. And um, as I say here, the consequences of this very simple equation are many and profound. We're all familiar with turning matter into energy. That's how our sun works. Our sun works through a process called nuclear fusion. And it takes tiny atoms like helium <coughs> and hydrogen and fuses them together into slightly bigger atoms. And the slightly bigger atoms have a little less mass than what you started with. And so that difference goes into energy. And that's actually the energy that powers the sun and lights up our world and makes life possible here on Earth. Okay? That's matter to energy. And of course, you can take very big atoms and break them apart in nuclear fission. And if the products are, have less mass than what you started with, you also get energy out. And that's why we uh, power nuclear power plants and, of course, can also make, uh, unfortunately, nuclear weapons out of that as well. So that's matter to energy. Energy to matter is a little uh, more subtle, sublime, but this is how I do my research. I had to get a plug-in for my research. So this is the, the Large Hadron Collider. It's a 27-kilometer uh, ring, 100 meters below the surface in Geneva, Switzerland. This is Lake Geneva here. Back here is Mont Blanc, which is the highest peak in, um, in Europe. And here what we have are counter-rotating beams of protons at very, very high speed energy. And we use the energy of motion to knock these into each other and turn that energy of motion into energy of mass of new objects that we can't find in nature. This is what we do in particle physics. And this is how the Higgs boson was discovered a few years ago, which is sort of the last fundamental piece of our standard model of physics. And it all comes from Einstein's equals mc squared. Okay, so let's take a break from the physics for a minute. I see some eyes glazing over, so... Uh, um, and, and just talk about Einstein the person for a little bit. And of course, a, a natural... Remember I showed you there was nothing really remarkable in Einstein's uh, upbringing or record to make you think that he was going to be able to do all this stuff. So you can ask, why Einstein? Well, 
after the fact, of course, I think we can all say he had a great intellect and the imagination. That was really uh, key, right, that he was able to visualize all the stuff that is outside our realm of experience. He, he was very good in math. I mean, he got help from people like Grossman and others, but he had very powerful mathematical abilities to work this stuff out. He was a very independent thinker. Remember, I told you he was a little stubborn, quit school when he was young, uh, you know, didn't really get along with teachers and so on. And I think that helped him as well. This is important because, of course, what he did was he overturned Newton's laws. He had really strong faith in Maxwell's physics, okay? both from what he knew and also it turned out it was interesting. His father's business had lots of motors and electrochemical stuff, and, and he really understood that stuff very well. And he realized that for Maxwell's physics to stay, um, uh, to not be violated, he had to change some of uh, Newton's physics, and that, that's what he did. And this is my own thought, but I, I think there's some merit to it, right? He was, remember, he was at the patent office. He was outside the mainstream, right? He didn't have to worry about going with the flow. And I, for those of you who are active, the missions here, you know, you're not worrying about tenure or anything like that. And uh, he could be bold, right? He could take risks that maybe is a little bit harder when you're, when you're in the mainstream. And, uh, and he certainly did that. And... Um, so I think those are some of the reasons why. Now what's interesting is that with his relationship to Newton, he really knew what he was, he knew that he was overturning what it, you know, was believed to be science gospel for hundreds of years, right? And this is a very nice quote to show it. Newton, forgive me, you found the only way which in your age was just barely possible for a man with the highest powers of thought and creativity. The concepts which you created are guiding our thinking in physics even today, and even today. In fact, when we teach physics to our majors or our pre-meds or our engineers, the whole first year is the physics of Newton and Maxwell. One semester of Newton, one semester of Maxwell. Okay? So you can see here that Einstein was almost feeling guilty, a little apologetic, right, of, of what he had done. But, um, but he did it nonetheless. And it's interesting at this point when people talk about, and, you know, it's just human nature. Everyone always wants to make lists. Who's the greatest of all time, right? So who's the greatest physicist of all time? And any time you'll see a list, you'll have Einstein and Newton, or Newton and Einstein. So I'll just tell you my own thought. Um, I actually put Einstein first, even though Newton was earlier and so fundamental. And the reason for me is that what Newton did was fantastic, but he was dealing with stuff, that the, the apple falling, things in our everyday experience, right? And Einstein just had to think about moving at nearly the speed of light, which nobody had ever experienced. It's that extra step, I think, uh, that to me elevates him a little. But it doesn't matter, right? I mean, there's no Hall of Fame or anything like that. <laughs> so, uh, <clears throat> okay. So, a little bit about after the miracle year. And you'd think, boy, after something like that, life would be a piece of cake. It actually wasn't, it was okay, it was better. But he didn't leave the patent office for another four years. He was appointed professor at, at uh, Prague, and then the next year at Zurich, and then a couple years later at Berlin. It, it was interesting, even uh, back then, he was, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in academia in Europe at that time, and he had to fight through a lot of that. And there's records of the hiring committees and stuff like that, and he had to overcome that. Uh, so it wasn't um, so smooth for him, and he was bouncing around a little bit. But here was, of course, a very good... Uh, uh, appointment here at the University of Berlin and director of an institute. And then he was, of course, working during all this time. And uh, at that time, he completed what is known as the general theory of relativity. And that's the next bit of physics that we'll talk about. 
So remember we talked about special relativity is only valid for observers moving at constant speed with respect to each other. So now he wanted to see what happens when we're accelerating, when our speed changes, okay? And that would include gravity. Uh, special relativity, the math's pretty easy. We teach it to first and second year students. General relativity is not easy at all. The math is incredibly complex. And it took Einstein and the people helping him about 10 years to get it right. And the resulting theory is very complicated, but it predicts some very uh, amazing results. And I want to start to try to give you a little feeling for this by going back to something that physicists love, which is the elevator. There's tons of physics at an elevator. And we've all experienced it, right? If you're in an elevator, as it starts to go up, you kind of feel your stomach drop, right? And of course, it's, um, and actually what's happening is, as you start to go up, you feel pushed down. And if you were standing on a scale, you would actually weigh more. The scale would read uh, more weight for you while it was first going up. Then you go at constant speed, and everything looks normal. And then when it starts to slow down, you kind of feel that experience, right? And you would actually weigh less on the scale. Okay, it's everybody has felt that, and it's. Uh, and the interesting thing that Einstein realizes that this would be the same as if we were just sort of dialing the knob and changing gravity. I made gravity a little stronger when the elevator started, or made gravity a little weaker when it stopped. Okay, so this acceleration and gravity um, were. were um, basically one and the same, or two manifestations of the same thing. And he came up with what's called, what we call the equivalence principle, which says that no experiment can distinguish between constant acceleration at the, at the rate that gravity uh, has and gravity itself. And this just shows you that here's Newton in a little elevator car on Earth watching the apple, against, again the apple, falling down. Here's Einstein out in space with the elevator car going up at the same rate as uh, gravity goes down on Earth. And if he dropped the apple, he would look, it would look, it would fall with the same speed, same acceleration. And he and neither one of them would know if they were moving, which one was moving and which one was on Earth with gravity. So gravity and acceleration are equivalent. That's the equivalence principle. And then what Einstein realized is that, and this is a complicated slide, so I'm just going to give you kind of the, the result. For an observer in an accelerating reference frame, this is one where the speed is changing a beam of light going across won't go straight anymore. It'll look like it'll bend. Okay. And then Einstein said, well, from the equivalence principle, if uh, acceleration bends a beam of light, then gravity must do it as well, because they're the same thing. You can't tell the difference between them. So he came up with this idea that gravity could bend light. It's a very interesting idea, mathematics and all that. Now, how do you prove it? Well. The effects are small, so you need a huge mass to bend light appreciably enough to uh, actually measure this. And the only big mass around was the sun. And, um, and it turned out, you know, from the theory, that if a star was behind the sun and the light came close enough to the sun, that starlight would bend, and then we would actually see the position of that star move. The problem is if the sun's out and the star's out, you're not going to see the star because everything's bright, right? But Arthur Eddington realize that actually if you did it in an eclipse, right, then the sunlight goes away and you could actually look and see where the star is and see if it's where Einstein would predict it or not. And that's what they did. I, I want to talk about Eddington for a minute. He was the secretary of the Royal Astronomical Society. So he was getting Einstein's papers in German on general relativity and translating them for the English audience. And he was a very smart guy and, and he was explaining it a lot. There's this uh, kind of apocryphal story where at some meetings explaining general relativity, and someone stood up and said, uh, Dr. Eddington, is it true that only three people on Earth 
understand the general theory of relativity. He pauses and he thinks and he goes, sorry, he goes, I'm trying to think of who the third one is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he was a very smart guy, and then he was also a skilled astronomer, and he, and he realized in 1919 there was going to be a, a, sol a complete solar eclipse along this path here. So they went to this little island off the coast of Africa. They waited for the eclipse, and they looked for a star that was right near the sun, and sure enough, that star was not where... Uh, well, it was where Einstein, it had shifted the amount that Einstein's theory exactly would have predicted. Complete confirmation of uh, Einstein's um, general theory of relativity. And again, look at the headline. They just don't write like this anymore, right? This is New York Times. Lights all askew in the heavens. Men of science more or less agog. I can't remember the last time I was agog. <laughs> over the results of uh, eclipse observations, Einstein theory triumphs, and, uh, you know, stars not where they seemed or calculated to be, but nobody need worry. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so, but th this made Einstein the rock star. This got worldwide attention, okay? And this is really when he became incredibly famous uh, uh, for, for being able to pull this off. And of course, it was the help of, uh, of Eddington also was really a key to all this. One other interesting thing about this, this, the bending of the starlight. When Einstein did the theory, the actual mathematics told him that there really wasn't a force of gravity. But really what happens is that what the mass like of the sun does is it curves space. And the light from the star really wants to go straight, but then it follows this curved space. And that's where the bending comes from. It's the actual curvature of space. And you get the same effect. You see the, the observed star has been shifted from where you would predict it to be because of this uh, curvature of space. And uh, this is what makes uh, general, relativity, general relativity so difficult because the mathematics for the, you know, we're used to working in Euclidean space where everything's nice flat in three dimensions. And curved space gets uh, a lot more complicated in a hurry. Now, just um, in, the, in the last few minutes, and I think I'll pretty much make it on time, um, talk about a couple of things that also came out of this. One thing Einstein realized a few years later, around 1930, is that, and I'll just quickly go through this, that if you had a distant star and then another star got in the way, then the light from that distant star could bend around it, and the, and the intermediate star would act like a lens. It's called <clears throat> gravitational lensing. Okay, And, and the, you would get these rings uh, from the lensing around there that are called Einstein's rings. Now, at the time, Einstein said, because technology wasn't so great there, there is no great chance of observing this effect. Now we see it all the time. And in fact, what's interesting about, they can measure this lensing and they can measure it so precisely that if this star happens to have a planet near it, it will disturb that lens enough that you can detect the presence of that planet or, or several planets going around it. So now, um, this technique is, it's one of the several techniques that are being used to discover exoplanets. We're finding planets all the time, like thousands of them now, of, uh, around stars um, all, all over the, uh, the galaxy. And, and uh, so that was interesting. And then what you've heard about very recently was something else very interesting. What also comes out of that theory is that a moving disturbance in the field will generate space-time waves which propagate at the speed of light through the universe. And just in the last few months, this was actually detected. Okay? This is the gravitational waves that were in the news uh, just very recently. So gravitational waves, what are they? Well, they're actually waves in this, in this space-time right? that, that surrounds everything. And, and so what happens is that if you have very large masses, you can generate 
gravitational waves. And, and the picture to think about the analogy is imagine a very long, calm pool of water. And you're at that end down there, and I'm over here. And then I start to disturb the water at my end, right? What will happen? The wave will propagate all the way down there <coughs> from my disturbance, right? And eventually you'll see that wave of water come up. And this is exactly um, what goes on with a gravity wave when there's a very large disturbance by a large mass, which, which disturbs the space-time, the curvature of space predicted by Einstein. So as these waves go through space, okay, they shrink or, or stretch the space that they're going through, just like a water wave disturbs the water that it's going through. And that's what's used to detect these gravity waves. So the experiment that did this is called the LIGO, the Laser Interferometry Gravitational Observatory. <coughs> to me, what's so beautiful about this, this is actually the experiment that Michelson and Morley did to disprove the ether. The same apparatus on steroids, okay, because that fit on the tabletop, and these are two and a half kilometers long, but, it, it, and there's two of them, because you want two, one in Washington, one in Louisiana, just to make sure that if one sees something, you get a confirmation from the other one. And there's these two, um, well, let me show you the next picture, kind of a schematic. You have a powerful laser, you split the beam, it goes down two and a half kilometers, it's a mirror, comes back. This one goes at right angles, two and a half kilometers, comes back. You combine the light together and make a pattern. And then if something disturbs the space time of one of those paths, that will disturb the, the combination pattern, and you can detect that. It's incredibly high technology. I mean, they're sensitive to any kind of seismic shift. They're sensitive to a truck rolling by or a train or anything like that. They have to subtract out all those effects. But what happened is that here in, uh, in uh, I came to read uh, Hanford up in Washington, you could barely see it, but this is the, sig the data they got compared to a, a model, a prediction, and they lie right on top of each other. The same for the, um, the site in Louisiana, and even when they combined them together, they got data to exactly... Um, predicted the model for a big disturbance out there in space. Okay? Nothing else could have explained that. What they saw only lasted a fraction of a second. This is amazing. The length, the change in length of the cavities, this path, was less than one thousandth the width of a proton, which is pretty darn small. But that's how sensitive this experiment is. And what they saw matches very well um, this model that said that two black holes, it's just an artist's representation, of course, colliding. These black holes are very tiny, but they're very massive, so they have about 30 times the mass of our sun, and it happened 1.4 billion light years away. So this is really just fantastic for physicists and scientists, and for everybody, right? This is, again, confirmation of the general theory, and it gives um, people a new way to look up in the sky. It's almost a new kind of astronomy that uh, we'll be able to use as the techniques get better and we build more of these um, as time goes on. And again, it comes from Einstein. Okay, I think that's it for physics, so we'll wrap up in the next couple of minutes. So he finally got his Nobel Prize. He actually got it in 1922 for the 1921 prize because they decided in 21 that nobody deserved the prize or something. <laughs> and the interesting thing is that he got it for his services to theoretical physics and especially for his discovery of the photoelectric effect. Not for relativity, even though that was so much, most physicists think that's much more astonishing and, and important and so on. So why not relativity? Well, here's a quote from the committee. The theory of relativity pertains essentially to epistemology and has therefore been the subject of lively debate in philosophical circles. 
Then it says, the theory in question also has astrophysical implications. Well, that's an understatement, <laughs> right? Which are being rigorously examined at the present time. So he got it for um, the photoelectric effect and uh, not the other stuff. But he still got it. So the weird thing is he actually gave the money away as a divorce settlement with his wife. But we won't get into that. Let me talk a little bit about his later years then. Now he was really a big shot, worldwide big shot, okay? Um, known everywhere. And, uh, but in, in 1933, even though at the height of his fame, because Germany was becoming what it was, uh, he decided to leave for the United States uh, and settled in Princeton, New Jersey. And just to, as an aside here, this was an amazing time, um, and it turned out to be, in a sad way, very beneficial for the United States. And with one law, um, uh, one quarter of all the physicists in Germany were uh, stripped of their posts. And many, hundreds of, more than 100 came to the United States, including 10 or 12 Nobel Prize winners, okay? And they worked on the Manhattan Project and did very many important things for us. So uh, um, it was lucky for us, and I think lucky for the way history turned out, um, but a very sad time. In 39, uh, he wrote a letter to FDR. They had heard that Germany was working on an atomic bomb, and he urged the U.S. to do the same, and that really helped trigger the uh, Manhattan Project. He did not work on the Manhattan Project. Many of his colleagues, including many of these German refugees and other European refugees, worked on it. In 40, he became an American citizen. This is interesting, most people don't know. In 1952, uh, he was offered, he declined the offer to succeed Chaim Weissman as the president of Israel. And I think to everyone's relief, he, de he declined that because <laughs> that just wouldn't have been, I mean, I think it was a very kind of an honorific uh, thing. And of course, the president. They have a parliamentary system, so it wouldn't be like the president here, but uh, Einstein wisely knew that he was no politician and uh, <laughs> decided not to do that. Let me talk the last couple minutes about the later years of his science. And the interesting thing about Einstein, right, all this great work, the genius, um, the last many years of his life were really, in some sense, in futility, okay? Uh, not successful in the classical sense. For one thing, uh, the new theory of quantum mechanics, he just didn't like, and it just uh, rubbed him the wrong way. Quantum mechanics says that the world is very probabilistic, not deterministic. You don't know what's going to happen. You only know the probability of this or that happening. Or even if, if you want to know where uh, an object is, um, you only know the probability of finding it there. And there's this famous um, exchange in a meeting where Einstein st stands up and says, God does not play dice with the universe, and you know. Bohr says, Einstein, shut up, sit down, and stop telling God what to do. Um, <coughs> Einstein's biggest blunder. When Einstein looked at his theories, he looked at the cosmos, he really believed that the universe should be static. Okay? And of course, he knew about gravity, so you know, he had to explain why is it everything being pulled back together through the gravity, right? All the galaxies and the stars and all that. So he invented something called the cosmological constant that he put in his formulas to keep the universe static. And then he, a little bit later, um, when Hubble discovered the expanding universe, and he said that was his biggest blunder. Well, it turns out now that there is something like the cosmological constant that we call dark energy. Something is actually accelerating the expansion of the universe. This was discovered in the last five or ten years, and, and Einstein might have been right after all, even though we thought it was a blunder at the time. And then, of course, a lot of his last uh, years as a scientist, he was trying to develop a grand theory of everything unsuccessfully, but he wasn't alone. Many, many people have been trying to do that, still trying to do it. We may, we're part of the way there. We've unified some of the fundamental forces in nature, and uh, there, are, there are people who think that um, this, this 
model or theory called string theory might be the answer. The problem with string theory is it doesn't give us anything that we can measure in the lab. It has no predictive power at all, so that's a little bit unsatisfactory for us, uh, especially for us experimentalists. In the last couple of slides, I just want to talk about Einstein and religion. It's interesting. A lot of people think he was an atheist, and that is not the case. And um, what is true is he, he didn't believe in a personal God, you know, that you could pray to him and would answer your prayers or, uh, or, as he says here, concerned himself with the fates and actions of human beings. So he says, I could not conceive of a God who rewards and punishes his creatures or has a will of the kind that we experience in ourselves. But what he did believe in was a God who reveals himself in the harmony of all that exists. And a spirit is manifested the laws of the universe in the face of which we, with our modest powers, must feel humble. So he spent a lot of time trying to figure out how everything worked, but he sort of realized that there was something there that put it all in place to begin with. In terms of the incompatibility of science and religion, he said, science can only be created by those who are thoroughly imbued with the aspiration toward truth and understanding. This source of feeling, however, springs from the sphere of religion. I cannot conceive of a genuine scientist without that profound faith. And the one I like, because it's so succinct, is he said, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. Which I think sums up exactly what he felt. Right? Interesting. So, at the end, April 18th, 1955, Albert Einstein dies peacefully in his sleep. And I like that I wanted to end the talk with this cartoon. For those of you sort of my age and, and, and older might remember a very famous uh, cartoonist named Herb Block. Herb Block. And this is the cartoon. It didn't come out very well, but it says, here's a, you know, this cosmos and here's Earth. It says, Albert Einstein lived here. <laughs> so I, I like it. And of course, uh, Abraham Pais uh, wrote his book, Einstein lived here, based on it. And I like it because, you know, it's interesting. It very meant, so first it's kind of just funny when you think about, you know, Lincoln slept here or Washington, whatever here. Um, but it also is more meaningful, right? Because I think what it says and what was true is that Einstein didn't belong. He belonged to the world, okay? Um, he belonged to the world. And, I, you know, when you think about what made him so Einstein, <laughs> so, uh, so famous. And, and, and I, you know, uh, for me, it's that he, he was trying to explain all these mysteries of the cosmos, right, of our universe that, quite frankly, people, um, it, it attracts people. It's a little scary for people, but it also attracts their spiritual side. And then the fact that he could actually do it and figure some of this stuff out, I think is just an incredibly positive statement for humanity, right, and our abilities as human beings. And so I think that's exactly right. Einstein lived here, and I'm, I think we're all glad that he did. Thank you very much. has agreed to take a few questions. No hard ones, though. <laughs> yeah. So you talked about how light travels, they kind of came up with the ether thing that didn't really exist. So these gravitational waves, what are they traveling through? And first of all, do they dissipate? With, that's why you need a large, massive collision. Do they dissipate like the wave in the lake? So if you're far enough away, there's really not much to dissipate them. The reason you, you need something um, massive is they're so hard to detect. The effects are so small, um, and they're not traveling. 
through something. It's actually, it's the space itself that is it, it disturbing. It is the something. Right? It is the something. Yeah. That's exactly right. Yeah. But the, it's in, the interesting thing about gravity, and this is why it's been so hard to come up with a fundamental theory of everything, it's gravity is incredible, even though it's important for us, compared to the other fundamental forces in nature, it's incredibly weak. So if you look at a, an atom, a proton and the electron, that are held together by the electric force. That electric force is 10 to the 40th time, so a, a trillion, 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 and a little more times stronger than the gravity holding those things together. So that's that's also the reason you need such a huge disturbance yeah. to be able to mm -hmm. uh, detect it. Yes? How was... Sorry. Uh, the, the lady here in the next... Uh, how, how was Einstein as a teacher? Is he well known for the students he produced? No. Uh, in fact, uh, the interesting thing, I don't... I believe it's true he never had a graduate student. Um, and I don't think he did a lot of teaching. Uh, he did a lot of lecturing. Um, yet, back when he was sort of fumbling around and before he got the patent office job, he actually taught high school. Interestingly enough, at the town where my wife is from in Switzerland, in the, the town called Schaffhausen, I don't think that went very well either. Another interesting thing, just, just to point out, though, there's a very important, actually, in, um, historical photo of him lecturing at a uh, historically black college. I think it's Lincoln College. Um, and um, to an all, it's interesting because it's back in the 30s, right, to an all-African-American group of students and so on. And uh, that, that picture is around and... and um, but as a teacher, I don't, I don't think that was his forte, no. I can't imagine Einstein teaching 150 pre-meds like I do. <laughs> so, uh, and it really would have been probably not the best use of his talents either. So, yeah. When you bend a sheet of paper, it goes effectively into the third dimension. When space bends, where does it go? It, it, yeah, it doesn't go anywhere it, it, because it is the space, right? But it's no longer flat, it's curved. And I, I, it, I can't... It's three-dimensional, so I can't really model it for It's very hard to... Uh, those, those pictures we kind of show are, are the best we can do of, like... Uh, I, I, so I can't really give you a, a satisfactory answer to that. But it, it's not that it goes somewhere else. It's, it's the space itself has been. Well, I'll give you another try. Okay, thanks. <laughs> Wavelengths have different colors. When they become photons, do the photons have a color? The photons would have a color. Right, so, so blue light... Okay, is actually made up of many, many little blue photons, each one having the color blue. That's exactly right. Yep. Yes. Well, wait. There's a there's a shift though, isn't there? A color shifting based on what this you're is, looking this at is a, in the cosmos. So this is a different effect. Um, and okay. I, I don't, so, remember when I said that the speed of light doesn't change whether you're moving with respect to it or not? It's always the speed of light. But what does change? What is the color? That is the Doppler shift of light. Very analogous to the Doppler shift of sound. An ambulance is coming toward you, and you hear the, as it comes toward you, you hear the high, the, the normal pitch get higher and higher if it's moving toward you, and as, as soon as it's by you, it gets lower. Okay, the same thing with light. If, if you are approaching light with some speed, okay, then that light gets shifted to higher frequency. It still goes at the same speed, and it becomes bluer. If the light is going away from you, it becomes redder. Okay, and this is actually the redshift is what Hubble and others looked at to realize that the universe is expanding. Because wherever you look out there, and you look at the stars, and you look at the light, and what what you actually look at are 
the light coming from certain chemical reactions where you know what the wavelength should be, what it would be in the lab at Earth, and you see those wavelengths shifted red. That's the so-called redshift. And what we see is wherever you look, everything seems to be moving away from us. And the only way that can be true is if the whole universe is expanding apart. I think that's what you're referring to, right? Well, yeah, it was just the sh idea that that would shift. So it wouldn't be like there's a blue photon, because depending on what you're in front of that photon, it looks blue. You're behind it, it looks red. I, yeah. Well, it's not in front of it. It depends on if you're moving with respect to it or not. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So you're right. If I'm just standing here, and a blue photon is coming at me. It looks blue. If I'm running at a very high speed, it's going to shift eventually uh, beyond the visible into the ultraviolet. Right. Okay. And if I run away from it, it'll become green. And if I go faster, it'll become red. So it's pretty darn fast. I'd have to be going very darn fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, way in the back. Hey, so you said uh, one of the things he kind of thought was interesting about Einstein was he's outside of the mainstream. I did. So how do you, when, when you hear someone outside of the mainstream, how do you go, maybe I should listen, or maybe that guy's selling steak oil, or how do you encourage your students <coughs> to, yeah. to try to, to it's, um, maybe there's another way? <coughs> There's some other physicists in here that could also mention. I have to tell you the honest thing is that I get stuff in my mail about some new theory or something like that, and I just typically will just toss it. I have to say, um, it, it's the difference is he was out of the mainstream, but he was trained and had the background right. Whereas if someone who has no training as in physics and no knowledge of basic physics thinks they've discovered a new you know, theory of um, perpetual motion or whatever, right? It's hard to give them any kind of uh, credibility. But you're right, maybe maybe we're missing a... There's, yes, did you want to comment on that? Oh, I was going to ask another question. Is that okay? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, did that... Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, yeah, go ahead, and then this gentleman here. Um, are there any experiments right now that you're especially interested in from here for this? Well, I like to think that what I'm working on is the frontier of physics. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm a high-energy physicist. We, we are at CERN in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, at that uh, lab that I showed you. And we are, you know, at the highest energies ever uh, collisions. And so, yes, we're hoping there's some new physics out there. We have, if I can take a minute and just sure, go ahead. Uh, to expand on that, we have what's called the standard model of particle physics, which is a beautiful theory that has worked too well for 30 years because it's boring when we never get anything in it. And every experiment we've done has been consistent with this uh, theory. And even the Higgs boson, we, we knew that should be there, so it was great to see it, but it was not new. What we know is that if, if you go up to high enough energies beyond what we're capable of doing right now, that theory starts to fail. We know that. And so we're hoping that we start to see the first signs of that failure soon. Or, um, to try to prevent that failure from happening, there's the prediction of a whole new class of particles. There's a theory called supersymmetry. And I would say that's probably the most hopeful and um, uh, optimistic, exciting thing that we think we may find in the next few years. One more question? And I'd be happy to talk to people afterwards as well. Yeah. I just wanted to clarify that the, it's not the muon that was the damaging wave. It was the precursor to that above... Earth's atmosphere. Oh, for the astronauts? Oh, okay, thank you. Is that, is that right? Is that, is uh, you're right, it would be the precursor to that. You're right, that would be the protons, actually. Okay. And actually, protons do much more than muons. Um, in fact, we use protons to do proton therapy to treat tumors and things like that.
So you're absolutely right. I, I misspoke. Thank you. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Wayne. Let's uh, let's thank. You. And now, before this uh, part of the evening concludes, I'd like to introduce Cecilia Brown from the University of Notre Dame Club of Portland. Thank you, Dr. Wayne, for coming out. As a token of our appreciation, we have just a little uh, something. It's an um, insulated bottle that is made here in Portland, and um, so it will keep things hot and cold, and you can ponder the physics of heat transfer as you drink it. <laughs> I teach it. Yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Thank you. But, oh, just, so we have, we have a Hesburgh lecture, a faculty member from the University of Notre Dame come out every year. Uh, we try to do it in the spring semester. Sometimes we're a little behind things and do it in the fall, but um, just please keep your eyes open. We have uh, lots of uh, wonderful minds who come out and share their knowledge with us, and uh, so we'd love to keep you coming back. Great, and if you're interested in uh, the latest goings on at Notre Dame, uh, uh, Dr. Wayne will be telling us that in a few moments uh, after a very short break. So again, thank you very much for coming out this evening.